0: Recently, TSIA researcher Steve Frost and I posted an episode where we discussed why TSIA believes the role of Chief Revenue Officer will become ubiquitous in the tech industry. In today's session, I will be joined by Todd Sion, who serves as the Chief Revenue Officer for Teradata, and we're going to dig deep into what this role means to a company that has been transforming its business model. I'm Thomas Law, the executive director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute, and we are on a mission to help our member companies run profitable technology business models that unlock real business value for customers. So let's click into what it means to be a CRO. Todd, welcome. Um, you you have a, a really interesting CV. I was checking it out. You were at Rackspace, Oracle. Apple, and now at Teradata. Tell us about your current responsibilities at Teradata.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. First of all, it's great to be here with you and your listeners. So my job at Teradata, I'm the chief revenue officer, not the first chief revenue officer at Teradata. I'm actually the second. And you could say that my job is both to run the business on a day-to-day basis and to transform. So a run and transform job. So we're a publicly traded company. And so we have quarterly accountabilities, of course, and I'm responsible for delivering against those revenue accountabilities. And we're also transforming as a company into a cloud-first and partner-first company. So um, I balance uh, the short-term and the long-term transformation goals that we have um, as well.
0: Yeah, I mean I've been you know tracking you guys for, for quite a while and you are, you know, in a sense uh, a classic example of a traditional tech company that's been around for a long time moving to that new as a service type model and there's a lot of moving parts there and there's a lot of moving parts you know related to, to generating revenue. And you know we, we believe that every tech company is facing the falling transformation, right? They're trying to reduce complexity for their customers, they're trying to anchor more in value realization. They are working to grow recurring revenues, typically with as a service offers, and cost effectively grow and expand those recurring revenues. And it's really that last challenge that we see is really making the business case for the CRO role. And so you you said that you're the second person in that chair. What what was the initial catalyst for Data to say, hey, we need this role?
1: Well, you know, our, our company is, I think, an interesting one while we're transforming like, you know, some other Traditional technology companies. uh, I think we're interesting because we're a growth company, but a profitable growth company. It's really the core focus of our company. You know, in transforming a company into a cloud first company, it starts from the bottom, kind of the foundation, and it's broad cross functionally. Um, And so, my role, you know, I spend a lot of time working cross functionally to help modernize any go-to-market related processes, any go-to-market related systems and tools, um, working with our overall route to market and how we're engaging with our existing customer base, our target new prospect base, as well as partner channel also. So that takes a lot of cross-functional work, not just kind of core sales related. And you touched on that you know important balance of growth but doing so efficiently mm-hmm. and that's a really really important nuance that I spend a lot of time on
0: so was it the fact that the business model is transforming the way that you're basically picking the money off the table was changing that sort of say hey we we need a different role focused on this than maybe before you might have had traditional sales executives but we need somebody who really is looking across all the different channels and that creates this need for a CRO type perspective is that fair
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're a B2B company focused on the large enterprise segment of the market. And while we have a direct sales force, and that's the classic route to market that we've taken our products through, it's certainly not the only route to market now. We've expanded from a direct sales force into, um, we still have a direct sales force, still core to us globally, but we've got um, a reseller channel that we've built. Um, we have a modern partner ecosystem that's a significant influence for us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a pretty broad perspective that I am responsible for. I work super closely with our chief marketing officer, super closely with our chief customer officer and other functions as well.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to talk about some of those relationships, but I'm really curious here. This um, growth of partners, right? To take your offers to to market resellers. It's really interesting is, is I'm looking at a lot of companies who traditionally have been channel intensive, right? They might have had a traditional on-premise product, but they were channel intensive. And now they're starting to get into as a service and they're grappling with this fact of, oh gosh, maybe I now should just have the direct relationship with the customer because they're going to quote, you know, be on my platform. You know, you guys are having more and more, you know, as a service type offers simultaneously growing the channel. So talk about that. That's a really interesting sort of twist on it. What's what's the catalyst there? What's, what's the opportunity that you see there?
1: Yeah, I think simply put it, scale yeah. and then influence as well. So from a scale standpoint, you think about a traditional reseller channel and we're not going consistently globally broad through a reseller channel. We're targeting either specific marketplaces like emerging markets to help us with coverage or specific industry sectors that require some domain expertise like federal government, etc and that certainly helps us scale. But on the influence side look at moving from 30 40 plus years of being an on-premise company now to a cloud first company, cloud service providers yep. Amazon, Microsoft, Google are critical for us as well. so you know if you think hand-to-hand combat co-selling, programmatic joint go-to markets uh, marketing, Joint technology innovation, those are all core parts of that partner category, I'd say. And then two others that are really critical for us for influence are the global and regional system integrator um, ecosystem, the Accentures, Deloitte, ENYs, Capgeminis, Kindrels of the world we're working very, very closely with, A, to deliver and migrate and deploy technology on top of our platform, but B, also to take advantage of their expertise and influence Within their base and within the marketplace. The last, I would say, are independent software vendors. For us, we're a platform company. Um, we're not going to be a first-party application company. And that means that our platform requires, you know, end um, you could say um, solutions, oftentimes that will come from either vertical or horizontal independent software vendors. So a modern partner ecosystem has become really core to our updated modern go-to-market.
0: Yeah. And I just want to make an observation for the listeners, because again, as more and more of the business goes to as a service out to the cloud, there is all this consternation about what happens to my channel partners, especially if they were traditional resellers that were making their money, installing stuff on premise, supporting stuff on premise. And obviously that business is going away, but what you just articulated is there's all kind of business here (laughs) for different types of partners doing different types of things and i mean the channel is not dead in this new world there's no way but it is different right the way you're using them and the relationships are are absolutely different and and so companies you know that's the knothole they have to get through in terms of of what that difference means to them in terms of channel strategy but let's go back to relationships so what is your relationship because i know you also have a chief customer officer so talk about that and specifically i'm really curious who, who owns this thing called customer success at Teradata? Is that a CRO or is that you know a CCO?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think if you look across the marketplace, you'll see the implementation of different roles and then kind of sub functions implemented in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I'm on my third fiscal year at Teradata. In my first fiscal year at Teradata, I helped start customer um, success. It was started in a few places globally, but I helped start it consistently and then scale it.
0: As a CRO, you you started it? Correct. Yeah, it
1: was my direct responsibility, as I also had direct responsibility for professional services um, at the time also. And as our company took steps down our transformation, I think as many do, um, we hired a chief customer officer who's a peer of mine, uh, Mike Hutchinson, who now leads all end-to-end, you could say, kind of services for Teradata, starting with customer success, post-sale, support, professional services or consulting, um, as well as cloud operations. And he and I work hand-in-hand, super, super closely for obvious reasons. You know, those functions certainly are super important puzzle pieces to overall go-to-market. But yeah, we work really, really closely with one another.
0: And so it's interesting there to, to me, and in the, in the posture you just described, I think is becoming the more common posture that CS will roll up through a CCO, the CRO, but it's also becoming more and more common for CS to have some revenue responsibilities as it relates to renewal, right? And so they may have that that renewal piece of it. So does your CS organization have any commercial responsibility or is it strictly delivering on services? What's the, what's the posture there?
1: Answers, yes, on commercial responsibility. I'm accountable for renewals formally today, and there's some important reasons kind of in where we are in our transformation. The customer success organization works in lockstep with our account teams in sales to ensure that customers experience the highest degree of value from their investment with us. And, you know, we essentially have a life cycle of value exchange with a customer. We want, you know, our sales organizations really working... To identify and progress net new opportunities within our existing base or new customers. And we want our customer success team, again, ensuring that customers getting value out of what they have. And they do also help us identify um, net new expansion opportunities within our existing Base and that's a critical, critical part to their job. Yeah, you know, and part of that also, in order to expand within a customer, you have to retain the customer. In order to retain the customer, they have to experience value in the technology they're they're using. So that life cycle is really important, and it certainly overlaps with our account teams.
0: Well, you know, we wrote in a book several books ago. We said helping will sell, selling won't help, and that's so true in these as a service world, like you said, it's about value realization, it's helping the customer. And as you do that, you're going to unlock, you know, new opportunities. And then and having that closed loop between a CS motion and, you know, an account expansion sales motion, I think is so critical. And it's so important to efficient revenue growth, right? If those organizations are just running in a very stovepiped way, you're just, you're leaving money on the table, but you're leaving efficiency on the table in terms of revenue growth.
1: Yeah. Not only growth, but also expense, right? If, if you're not in lockstep and have aligned execution, it's not a effective go-to-market model. You know, we I talk a lot, and Mike and I both jointly talk a lot about speed, speed, speed between our teams, but never at the expense of collaboration. Mm-hmm. So we operate at a very, very rapid clip. We expect our teams to be moving really fast, but never at the expense of not bringing the account team along or the account team not bringing the customer success team along. Etc. It's it's critical to be fully aligned.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my observation is, I mean, I, I think the, the the marker, the sign of an enlightened technology company today is that you do see this really tight collaboration and trust between a sales and a CS organization. It's got to be there. So that's the way the models have got to work. And when you don't see that, you know that there's again inefficiencies, there's pain, there's just there's just a lot of opportunity. So I'm curious in terms of growing revenue. So historically, and you already put this on the table, the fact that, you know, a lot of B2B tech companies primary channel to market was hiring a direct sales force, uh, you know, to go have those complex conversations, et cetera. But you know, we feel that one of the reasons, again, more and more companies are going to have a CRO in place is that they can focus on different growth levers, whether it's you know channel led growth or whatever it is. And I'm I'm curious, besides hiring sales reps, and maybe even besides, you know, the new channel uh, the opportunities or, or capabilities you're building, what are some of the potential growth levers that you're most excited about you see for the next generation opportunities?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there's a, there's a couple pieces to it. It's not just about adding capacity, um, although that's certainly a classic way to grow. I think certainly about product-led growth. We've just launched a new platform as an example. I mean, over the last two years, our company in, has invested millions and millions of dollars in R&D for an updated modern cloud native data and analytics management platform mm-hmm. called Vantage Cloud Lake. And for us, that is such a tremendous opportunity to take that new innovation to existing customers um, and to do so kind of in a scaled way. We certainly do that through humans, through our Salesforce, and I'll talk about some other roles. We do that through our marketing, clearly digital and otherwise, to help us drive just organic growth. We do have a specialist model as well. Um, It's a small overlay specialist model that we've deployed. There's a historical one of very industry oriented experts. They focus on building, targeting, initiating, and influencing line of business relationships with CFOs, with CMOs, with chief supply chain officers, et cetera, to identify new use cases that our platform can add differentiated value. We have an analytics expert as well they you know, have oftentimes have some level of analytics and or data science background, and they target uh, and influence the most senior analytics decision makers within the enterprise as well mm-hmm. to help grow. Um, I did reference the partner channel. Increasingly, it's super important for us to be able to influence and grow across a variety of different ecosystem categories. Marketing is such a critical function for us to grow as well. So there's there's a, a variety of ways that uh, we're looking at growth.
0: You know, I have to put a plug in here. I know you, you know, Steve Frost on our research team, and he's going to do a an industry survey around the role of specialists. And so uh, I have to promote that here because I think you know that is a really, I think, a bigger and bigger question for folks. Uh, you know, for tech providers. Um, I think for a couple reasons. One is just the complexity of you know portfolios and having experts from from that lens. But I think more importantly, the one that you put on the table is this vertical perspective. Because there was, you know, historically, a lot of us could go to market in a very horizontal way, right? And didn't have to really understand too deeply some of the nuances and what's the difference between a manufacturer and a bank or whatever. But, you know, more and more, to really nailed the value proposition at the vertical level. And, and that's typically not a generalist, right? They can't go deep that way. So, um, yeah, I think that, that's interesting. So, so let's let you, you, mentioned, you know, analytics and obviously that's what you guys, you guys care about. You know but we believe from a revenue generation perspective that analytics is really uh, the new superpower so so how do you leverage data and analytics as it relates to driving revenue
1: yeah what's the old analogy that the shoe cobbler's family has no shoes <laughs> um, you know
0: we're,
1: we're, we we think that I mean, for our customers, we're a leading multi-cloud platform for enterprise analytics, and we think we're super differentiated, right, right. very differentiated. You know, Gartner and Forrester say that that we're in their leaders quadrant, et cetera, in many, many categories. Internally, however, we're certainly in a maturation process on how we're leveraging data and analytics across each of our functions. And I'm proud of the progress we've made in the last couple of years. Um, we've begun to use some, uh, some AI tools to help us uh, look across kind of predictive scoring
0: mm-hmm. um, based on activity trend for like expansion type of opportunities type of thing.
1: Expansion opportunities and even across our active pipeline that we have within expansion, but also, you know we essentially have three types, and this is probably three types of opportunities. We're expanding our base. We're migrating our base from on-prem to the cloud or we're initiating net new commercial relationships, winning new logos. Mm-hmm. So really across that entire pipeline, we have um, a few new tools that, that are helping us predictively score and progress um, opportunities. And that's showing some early promise, um, I would say, you know, and, and then there's some traditional BI tools that we use to look at, you know, weighted pipeline and coverage and dozens and dozens of dimensions. Um, as well,
0: in terms of the predictive analytics um, with what with customers on on opportunities, give me some example of the types of data points or telemetry that is feeding that. Right? Is it what they're doing on your website? Is it you know? Is it how they're responding to a marketing campaign? Is it? I mean, just a general sense of the types of things that the tools dial into.
1: Yeah, there's there's a variety of inputs where we access data. The example I would give you would be, you know, because a, a big portion of our route to market is a direct sales force. And again, we're serving the large enterprise. That means B2B sellers. Mm-hmm. So the activity associated with that B2B seller engaging with an existing customer, potentially around an opportunity. So lots of information associated with that opportunity from proposal, quoting, email exchanges, mm-hmm. um, other types of communication are all gathered, scored, and and um, it provides kind of predictive indexing for sales management to coach. We use it as a, certainly not a punitive tool by any means, but it's a coaching tool. Yeah. And it's gotten better and better and better as, as we've had that tool deployed to provide more and more insight for sales leadership and coaching. And we think that's certainly helped us with efficiency of boosting some of our progression and close rates.
0: So let's go down that trail a little bit because you know art versus science for the selling process, right? And I would uh, I would assert that historically the sales has been heavily weighted on the art side of it, right? Hey, we need to hire this great senior Sales executive who has a great track record of knocking down doors, and I don't know how you know he or she does it, but you know we know that they're effective, right? And you let them lose, as opposed to what you just described is using analytics and data to help develop people, to help you know get their skills better, to help the manage the sales process better. I mean, I think that is the future of selling. And you know, I think about tools like Gong, et cetera, that provide feedback post call, et cetera. My question to you, as a CRO, is how long does it take for us to be more weighted on the science side is is sort of the common practice within, you know, sales and technology. Is that three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, how rapid, I'm just curious, you know, what you think about that rate of change because sales, I got to be honest with you, typically is not a fast changing, (laughs) you know, beast within companies, right? They're pretty, they're pretty married to their historical approaches. So what's your gut there? I'm just curious.
1: Look, I think probably like any industry and in any function within a company, everyone's at a different place. I've experienced even some very modern born in the cloud companies, their go-to-market may not be as modern and vice versa. And you know, while we're not a born in the cloud company, I like to think that our go-to-market is uh, matured and modernized very rapidly. So with that being said, I think there's tools and then there's even legacy tools can help you with science. You know, I mean... In a B2B, in the enterprise model that we're operating here, we're focused on the global 10,000. That's the marketplace that Teradata is focused on. That's public, so it's defined, very large, complex buying processes within these big businesses. We have a sales process, a very defined sales process, which not unlike other companies. We're not a high-volume model. We're not targeting mid-market SMB. So we have a sales process with stage gates and verifiable outcomes to move from stage gate to stage gate. You can put some science around those verifiable outcomes and you can see patterns across geographies, across teams, across even individual contributors. You can see patterns and those, those patterns allow then sales leadership to coach. And it also allows our revenue operations team to build enablement as we see patterns around stage gate progression or, or, or slowing it exactly like you said allows the marketing organization to target offer development in partnership with us as well so you know i think there's lots of things you can do to combine science like you're describing then with the art of coaching people mm-hmm. and then the engagement with a customer even engagement with a customer you know you mentioned the phrase value realization and i think there is a lot of science behind a proposal. Mm -hmm. And actually the deliverable, again, large enterprise, and I'm not doing millions of small transactions, we're doing very large transactions. The quality of a proposal and the value that's being exchanged is, I think, such a critical indicator of the quality of an overall sales process. And um, we're moving to use science more and more and more in documenting value for our customers and our prospects and then, you know, scoring eventually. What does that proposal look like, and how did it drive that opportunity?
0: And let me play a couple things back. You know, what you just said. First of all, on the value, the value realization. I agree with you. I think it's it's becoming a very different game. Historically, we could create sort of a theoretical ROI for a customer that would get the deal across the you know the goal line, and then nobody goes back six months later or twelve months later and says, "Oh, did you get that?" Theoretical RI, nobody, right? This is a world where, to your point, you are developing proposals. It's probably a data-driven process to say, look, this is the value we can unlock. This is what's going to happen here. And then you're driving to that value. You're probably following up to make sure you got that value. You're using, you know, that data about value achieved to feed back to the next proposal or offer structure. And so that becomes very data-driven scientific approach in terms of value realization.
1: Agreed. And particularly, I think in a global economic marketplace like we're operating in today, that is such a critical part of being able to progress an opportunity yeah. is documenting value. If I've seen any pattern you know, in the last year to year and a half, it's that large decisions, economic decisions within large enterprises certainly are being scrutinized more heavily by more people requiring a documented ROI in a shorter period of time. So Salesforce is to be successful, have to be really good at that. Yeah.
0: You know, the other thing you, you said a couple of moments ago, I just want to comment on is that there's a lot of value to be had even from legacy systems, right? And in, in, in current infrastructure. And when you said that, I just, I think about just your basic CRM system. If a Salesforce is really truly putting the opportunities in, you know, the stage information, you know, and you have all that, that is really fertile ground to your point to really understand, but if they're not using that, right, or sort of using it, that huge missed opportunity there. So you're right. Even, even just some of the technology that has been with us for quite a while now can be better leveraged.
1: You know, I was thinking about what you said, but the age-old challenge about getting a salesforce to input things into CRM—it all has to be value-based. You know, if the salesforce sees value actually in doing that, I've found that their hygiene increases exponentially. Yeah. You know, if if it's just purely for visibility up the chain, yeah. it's certainly a challenge. Here's an example too that we're we're I'll give a plug to Microsoft. We're a Power BI shop here at Teradata, and so. We simply have Power BI connected into our Salesforce implementation, and we use that immensely. And we slice and dice the data right out of Salesforce that when we combine that with our new predictive analytics tool, is becoming you know increasingly super effective. But even without a predictive analytics tool, there's so much you can do, like we were talking about, just a well-managed uh, and strong hygiene in a CRM system and then a, a BI tool.
0: So you said something I think is really important in terms of the Salesforce leaning into using you know something like CRM that it can't be about just, hey, we need visibility for your regional vice president to know, you know what the pipeline looks like, but that there's a value proposition to that. So click into that. I mean, talk a little bit about how you get the Salesforce to have that realization, right? That if I'm really using these tools and keeping my opportunities up to date and et cetera, what are you seeing as the value prop back to them?
1: Selling in the enterprise is a team sport. We just referenced several different roles, right? From an industry expert specialist to a customer success manager. Um, we certainly have commercial contracting teams. You know, we have InfoSec as a cloud company, we have a law team. As well, and all of those resources are working on the same opportunities. If CRM is used effectively, is a great workflow tool and collaboration space, mm-hmm. and that's that's what we've worked hard to create for our teams. It's not just a repository of opportunities and contacts, but it's actually where people work. Additionally, you know, account planning, as again, a B two B in the enterprise, account planning is so critical, and that's where we do our account planning. Mm-hmm. And that's a journey. Yeah. You know, it's not perfect, but really important for us. To, have account planning sit within CRM.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I again, I think you put a really important point on there, and I would encourage any CRO or sales executive to be thinking about that. What are the value propositions we can articulate to our sales force of why they want to, you know, lean into the tools? Make sure we have great visibility um, for all the reasons you just articulated. But that's, I think, that's often missed, and, and people get frustrated, like you said, of why, you know, why, why aren't they using the tools? So, so I want to just click a little bit more into this. What's different about the CRO role, and and let's talk about metrics. I mean, if you think about a typical sales executive, they are laser focused on bookings, right? That, that's what they're accountable for. I got to hit the bookings for the you know the month, the quarter, the year. How, and obviously, you care about you know bookings and and, and revenue, but what other metrics do you care about as a CRO, or what do you think is different there?
1: Yeah, I think it, it certainly probably depends on the breadth of responsibility for CRO. From my standpoint, I am responsible for our sales organization. And that includes you know, our direct sales force. That also includes our architects and our pre-sales technical teams. That includes revenue operations. And then as I referenced around partners, we have a partner and alliance organization that sits in GOs as well as a worldwide teams that are really, really important for us. We have some program teams as well that connect into marketing, et cetera. So with the breadth Of those functions, you know, lagging indicators that I think a lot about AR growth or annual recurring revenue growth, actual growth. So both cloud growth for us and then total ARR growth as we are cloud first, but not cloud only. We still have um, business on-prem and uh, productivity is certainly important for us as well. ARR per headcount is a very important metric. Uh, Participation rate is something that I look and spend a lot of time and thinking about and trying to influence. That you know the number of reps actually hitting their plans, the number of our of our reps actually contributing cloud opportunities, et cetera, and then leading indicators that are a guidepost against those lagging indicators. You know, from a people standpoint, we certainly work a lot on attrition management, on building a diverse sales force, our diversity metrics. From a partner standpoint, partner attach. Um, How are we doing changing behaviors of our sales force and attaching partners? Participation rate of partners is important. You know, a host of pipeline metrics that are leading indicators as well, including weighted coverage, velocity, linearity. Where are we getting our pipeline from by source and holding teams accountable? That kind of leads you then into marketing. The number of executive briefings we're delivering, MQLs. I mentioned customer success. That's another source of pipeline for us. Etc. So we've got a balanced scorecard. We look at it from a lagging and leading indicator standpoint.
0: So one of the the metrics you put on the table there was you know ARR per per headcount, and I think in much earlier you have made the comment that you know hey we're a profitable you know as a service company, and you know that is you know, that word profitable is something that's missing from the vast majority of born of the cloud companies to this date. And we believe that that's going to change. It is changing. It's got to change rapidly, but it starts to come down to some of those types of metrics. I mean, ARR per headcount. I mean, if you're just basically, yeah, hey, we're, you know, we're growing 20 or 30 or 40%, but we're solving that by just throwing tons of headcount at it. it's, It's unsustainable, right? I mean, it's just unsustainable. So I think that, you know, some of the legacy companies like Terra Data, that are going through this transformation have a leg up because that is part of the DNA, right? In terms of the the efficiency part of it. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see, I think, how this year and next year unfolds in the tech industry between this balance of really high-flying SaaS companies but unprofitable versus legacy companies that now truly, after you know chipping at it for several years, are turning the bend. Turn in the bend, and you know they're competitive in the in the new world and and new types of offers. So it's gonna be fun times.
1: (laughs) We agree. We we agree. We think both are super important. Certainly, our our stakeholders feel the same way. It's an important balance within our company. It's certainly tricky. Forces you to make smart, really hard decisions both internally and then on behalf of the way you support and serve customers and partners. But. But we think it's really, really important. And that's a commitment for
0: us. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting, just watching this, is I, I know talking to so many executive teams over the past five years, again, from companies that have been around for a while, the frustration to say, look, uh, I'm looking at competitors who may be born in the cloud company, highly unprofitable, and nobody seems to care. They're just getting all the love, you know, and, and we're over here and we're trying to do what you just articulated, right? We're trying to balance and we're not getting any love. And that has, changed dramatically in the last you know year in terms of investor preference there. And so it's a it's much more balanced now, right? Investors are saying, no, I, you know, I'm much more interested in a growth plus profitability story than simply a growth at all cost story. And so I think it really has changed the landscape for you know for a lot of teams. So I want to ask you one more question. You know, if you were a new CRO, first time in the chair, maybe again the company's just establishing the role, what advice would you give to them? And especially because a lot of them are going to come from a sales pedigree and background. So you've been maybe a sales executive all your life. And now the company's saying, no, you know, we, we need a CRO. What perspective would you give them as they step into that chair?
1: Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. I, I think some of them are grounded in probably the success they had early, mid in their career. But just reminders, you know, things don't change when you're a CRO as well. Like confusing activity with results. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, On the other side of the coin, though, I mean, this gets maybe into values, but for me, it's really important that the more responsibility you have and the harder this can be, I've experienced, but your worth as a leader, and maybe even as a human, it's not defined by your quota attainment. And it can be a lonely job. I'm just being honest about that because, you know, you you take on the revenue growth for a company and being accountable for it. And for me, that's an exciting and heavy responsibility. But I have to remind myself that as goes growth and attainment doesn't go my value you know as a leader as a human. Second category I'd highlight you know it's people people people. It's an important reminder throughout a career. But even when you have more responsibility, the CRO hiring highly talented people, but those that you can trust. Particularly if you get into global responsibility with distributed teams across the planet, trusting people. Um, that are a distance long distance away, game changer must have it. And then being intentional about connecting, having an intentional tactics and a plan about connecting with people, multiple layers through your team um, and globally. Um, I referenced it already, the importance of collaborating cross-functionally, you know when you're in a role that's broader and its responsibilities, working with your peers, you know, whether you're sitting on an executive leadership team, of a company, or you know, you're know, you sitting within an operations organization, whatever it may be, collaborating cross-functionally becomes increasingly important yeah. mm-hmm. when you have broader responsibilities. Super, super critical to get buy-in from a uh, customer success function, professional services, marketing, cloud operations, et cetera. The list goes on and on. And when you have more responsibility, there's, I think, some other age-old truths that are still critical, like Balancing, staying in the day-to-day details. While I have a breadth of responsibilities, I, I have to be operationally in the day-to-day. And I have people and teams that certainly I partner with to do, but I'm in the details. So I know uh, on a day-to-day, you know, week-to-week, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter basis, the intricacies of our business. And I'm responsible for being that expert back to our CEO and to our board. But you have to also be at an altitude that you're understanding and driving strategy not just living in the day-to-day. And then I'd say the other dimension then is you are a much better leader, even with breadth of responsibilities when you are externally focused. A, you're probably pretty good at influencing people if you've gotten into this job you know, as a seller yourself, but B, uh, remaining directly connected to your customer base and to your partner ecosystem will make you a better leader internally and help you make better decisions. So staying connected personally with some key customers, partners, it's super, super important. And, you know, if you don't remind yourself of that, you can uh, just let your calendar be your guide and you'll stay internal all the time, which is not the right place to be.
0: Well, I mean, you said so many, I think, helpful and insightful things there. just two that I, I want to comment on, you know, one about that balance between the day to day and the longer term. I mean, in our perspective as a CRO Unlike a traditional sales executive, I mean, a traditional sales executive is typically pretty focused, again, on what's going to happen this year to hit the number, and then we hit a reset button for next year. I think as a CRO, it's that balance between, I, obviously, I'm responsible for hitting the number this month, this quarter, this year, but simultaneously, I've got to be thinking about how are we going to do this faster, cheaper, better next year? right? in the year after. And I think that's a little, you know, it's, it's a balance that, that is required in this role. And the other thing that you said, I think is so important, this theme that you've had here today around collaboration, the days of the highly successful superstar sales executive, you know, there's people who've had whole entire careers in, in that model and uh, very successful careers. I, I just think that's going to be really hard to pull off in today's world, you know, in what you're describing. And so collaboration, I think, is just just has to be baked into the way you're approaching this role, obviously, but just the way we're approaching sales in general in in tech. So fantastic advice. Well, I I really appreciate your time today. I want to be uh, uh, cognizant of the clock here. And I always end these episodes with a question of the day. So here's the question of the day. If profitability is becoming the buzzword of the day in tech, how do you achieve profitability without optimizing how you generate revenue? Cheers, everybody.